and what's going to happen 10, 15 years in the future, uh, you know, if conflict ever does uh, erupt. Space will obviously play a part. Maybe it will be conflict in space, maybe it will be war in space. Uh, but regardless, any kind of conflict, space is going to play a role. So we need to think about that now. Uh, and I've just, uh, there's certainly none of the, none of the military folks were, uh, were willing to take, uh, take a bite at that apple. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello again, Downlink listeners. It must be the end of the month because in this episode, we're talking about China, space and defense. China is moving out on its plans to put Taikonauts on the moon before the close of the decade. And Venezuela is the second nation, with Russia being first, to join the China-led International Lunar Research Station project. Also, China has notched some interesting firsts, such as the first successful methane-powered rocket launch ever and the recent deployment of 41 satellites into orbit aboard a single rocket. It's a national record because U.S.-based SpaceX holds the world record for the most deployed satellites in a single rocket launch, which it set in 2021 with 143 satellites. This episode is also covering some more reports of weird. In May, we covered how the investigation arm of the Chinese Communist Party's Central Committee launched a probe into the three state-owned aerospace companies responsible for developing China's version of SpaceX's massive satellite communications network, Starlink. This time around, it's being reported that those who are or who have been part of the military's rocket forces leadership, mostly general officers, may now be under scrutiny. To sift through what's real, what's not, and to get a sense of who the Biden administration has nominated to lead the U.S. Space Command, we have two of the best China, space, and U.S. military experts I know. Chris Stone and Brendan Mulvaney. Here's our conversation. Hi, Chris. Brendan, it's great to have you two back to talk about China, space, and defense. Thank you. Appreciate being back. Yeah, really happy to join you guys today. Now, before we get started, we need to do some short introductions. And Chris, why don't you start? Sure. I am Christopher Stone, Senior Fellow for Space Deterrence at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies in Washington, D.C. I'm also the author of a book uh, that came out a few years ago called Reversing the Dow, a framework for credible space deterrence that is on Amazon if you're interested. And uh, I mostly write on uh, space warfare, space deterrence and things of that sort and also about China. So, again, happy to be here. And Brendan, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing. Great, thanks. I'm Brendan Mulvaney. I'm the director of the uh, Department of the Air Force's China Aerospace Studies Institute. Uh, I got to the privilege of being an Olmsted Scholar in China back in 2003, 4, and 5, and I've been uh, doing China stuff pretty much uh, ever since, and now I get to do it for the Air Force. And Brendan, weren't you recently in Europe? Um, take a few minutes and tell us about where you went and what you learned. Yeah, it was a, a terrific trip. I got uh, invited by the uh, the chief of the Royal Air Force uh, to go to his Global Air and Space Chiefs Conference, which they hold uh, every year, COVID notwithstanding, of course. Uh, they had, I want to say, about 40 or 50 uh, Global Air and Space Chiefs from around the world 
that came uh, came together to talk about uh, you know uh, important topics. Uh, and this was the first year they actually had a panel focused on the Indo-Pacific, which I thought was uh, pretty uh, pretty interesting. The fact that uh, you know everyone coming to England uh, and we were still talking about the Indo-Pacific, so uh, it was uh, it was fantastic to be there um, and happy to tell you tell you more about it. Well, tell us more now. I mean, what did what do you think was your number one or number two takeaway from it? Well, so uh, there was a wide range of uh, interest and I would say uh, knowledge, uh, depending on how close I think the countries were to uh, to Asia, to China, or uh, the further away you got, maybe uh, not so quite uh, as heavily focused. So we certainly got a lot of questions. Uh, we had a panel discussion, so there were six of us up there on the stage. Um, and, uh, we covered quite a, uh, quite a broad gambit talking about, uh, geopolitical stuff to military stuff to, uh, a lot into what China has been doing in space recently and, uh, you know, what that may or may not indicate for their, uh, their progression toward the future. So, uh, I mostly, uh, I kind of tried to lay out uh, the basics of, uh, the Chinese state, uh, you know, Xi Jinping's role in leading, uh, how focused China has been on space. Uh, both for commercial aspects and military aspects, uh, and the fact that he's been there a long time and presumably will be there for at least five, if not ten more years, uh, that trend will continue. And I think that really kind of woke the crowd up. Uh, and then I had uh, my friends from XY Analytic that lent me a couple of their graphics that showed what China's done with some of their uh, satellites recently, SJ-21, SJ-23, um, and uh, kind of demoed that for the crowd to just say, hey, this is this is what they're going to do today, and they're marching forward. So it was a, a great a great ranging uh, discussion uh, and some Q&A that followed. And now to some of those interesting developments. In Wuhan, at an aerospace summit held earlier this month, Zhang Hailian, he's the China Manned Space Agency's deputy chief engineer, well, he explained the CMSA's novel approach to putting taikonauts on the moon by the end of this decade. There's always been a question about how China would get its taikonauts to the moon because they don't have a massive rocket equivalent to NASA's space launch system, which performed a successful uncrewed test journey out well beyond the moon and back late last year. The Chinese don't have that massive rocket launch capability yet, but they do have a novel approach to meet the state's deadline of 2023. And the way they're planning it now is to use two separate rockets and space capsules, and one will carry a moon rover and the other will take the Taikonauts. And once these two capsules insert into lunar orbit, they're supposed to link up so that the Taikonauts can then transfer transfer over to the rover capsule and then land. Guys, this seems really complicated to me. What does this say about their capabilities and their thinking, and why are they taking this approach? Well, so we should never forget that uh, going to the moon is hard. Uh, You know, we've done it uh, many times, but not for a long time. Uh, NASA produces some fantastic uh, rockets, especially in partnership uh, with the U.S. commercial industry. But it is hard. Uh, there's a lot of work and time and effort and, and preparation that goes into it. Uh, China obviously has hit a couple stumbling blocks on going the way that we would have gone about it. And so they have a Chinese solution to a Chinese problem uh, that probably is fairly complicated, but that doesn't mean that they won't be able to accomplish it. Yeah. And I'll just mention the the way they're looking at doing that, as you mentioned, is essentially one of the three options that we looked at back in the 1960s for Apollo and this one uh, is called Earth Orbit Rendezvous, essentially, where you have two rockets instead of one big one. 
and you take the the crewed vehicle on one and you take the the lander on another one and you meet up in earth orbit and you burn your way out to the moon do your mission and re-rendezvous and then come back um so that that is one that von braun warner von braun that was one of his ideas as a way to get us there quicker back in the 60s and of course we ended up using what was called lunar orbit rendezvous which was with the apollo and the saturn 5 with the lunar module carried on the same rocket um that that worked pretty well and able to get us there quickly so i'm not really surprised by by that i think that makes sense and i think they've they've demonstrated a lot of their their progress with docking which is which is the joining of two space vehicles together with their space stations both autonomously and under manned control. Uh, the other thing I'll mention is, is they are working on a super heavy lift rocket. It's called Long March 9. Um, and I think they are going to be having some tests on that here in the near future. So this is this is one way to get them out there. Um, and then uh, Long March 9 is for their future. And then they're also looking at everything to up to and including um, rapidly maneuvering nuclear uh, powered and propelled space vehicles that get out and back to the moon and beyond. So they're definitely taking incremental steps. They've done that over the years. They've been successful. And I think they'll, unless something weird happens, I think they'll stay on, on schedule. But if they can actually join up these two spacecraft, and my understanding is that they intend to join them up in lunar orbit, which is obviously a different kind of uh, an orbital regime than we have here around the earth. I mean, what would that actually mean technically about their capability and the kinds of technology that they're able to well field and, and also field in terms of defense? Well, I'll start by saying I think they already have demonstrated their ability to send vehicles out to the moon um, with their with their current rockets and the, probably the ones that they would use for this. Um, everything from a lander on the far side, which was the first country to do that, to up to and including their, their um, comm relay in, in Lagrange Point 2 on the far side, which, you know, they're, they're from what I've been hearing, they're looking at building another one and then expanding a whole ar- architecture of navigation and communication uh, systems around the moon and between the moon to be able to have a continuous command and control and, and continuous knowledge of the state of their vehicles, which unlike Apollo and most of our vehicles, we don't have that capacity. So from a standpoint of space situational awareness and domain awareness, that would give them the ability to kind of track and communicate in cislunar space as well as in orbit to be able to track vehicles uh, traversing in between the two. So from a military standpoint, I think that's that's pretty big deal. And from a civil slash commercial, which, you know, they really don't have that kind of divide like we do, but so everybody understands what I'm saying. I think that'll be a benefit as well to those other sectors. Now, China has also signed two agreements and you know, one is with the US antagonist and that's Venezuela and the other is with Egypt which has been receiving US foreign aid since 1946 and since then it has received more than 87 billion in bilateral foreign aid. And that number has not been adjusted to account for inflation and does not include the $1.4 billion that it's going to supposedly receive for FY 2024. I'm trying to understand what's going on here. These are two separate agreements. One is for the moon and one is basically about intelligence. But what's going on here? Well, I think, uh, you know, China, like the United States, is perfectly happy to have people join up to its set of programs. They've laid out what they want to do and how they want to do it. 
uh, and they're, you know, uh, happy to have people join in. And so it should come as no surprise that people specifically thinking Venezuela on that account, uh, you know, who are essentially cut out of uh, anything to do with the United States these days uh, would be willing to join that. Egypt, of course, uh, you know, not known as a big space power, probably has some uh, has some ventures, vested interest in in joining up. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't know why, uh, if, you know, how much effort the U.S. State Department has been putting into to wooing them to come on our side or if there was even an offer extended. So uh, it's possible they just wanted to get in the game and they're happy to do. Uh, there's nothing really precluding them from also joining in the Artemis Accords and joining in a U.S. effort as well. So uh, the two are not mutually exclusive, I would say, specifically in the case of Egypt. Yeah, I would say that there are, there are other countries that we have close partnerships with that that if for some reason based on their own interest, I would assume is you know options to play both sides are definitely viewed. So like the Indians, for example, they're part of the BRICS with with Russia and China and um, South Africa and, and Brazil, and then you have they also have partnership agreements with us going back at least to the Trump administration when the vice president went there and worked on some details with them. So it's something that that each country has their own interests and their own desires, and they want to see which one will, will give them the best options. For a while there, even like with China, for example, the European Space Agency was, was, was going to send astronauts to the Chinese space station. And then after all the interesting things started happening more, uh, with their their aggressive behavior, both economically with Belt and Road, and then also in the South China Sea and and in space, they decided to back out of that. But you know, I think that's something to be watching. I also think that it's part of the Russian and China's push to build a counter move to Artemis Accords, and I think that makes total sense that they would want to do something like that if if the whole goal of of the Chinese strategy in space and on Earth is to supplant the U.S. led international order. Um, definitely prestige, presence, and, and military power um, are necessary to that. And space is obviously one of those, those areas that, that demonstrate that. And so, gentlemen, there were a few other developments over the past eight weeks since I had you on to talk about China. What else caught your eye and why do you think it's important? Well, there's a, a lot going on, uh, you know, constantly, which is why we continue to have jobs, which is fantastic. Uh, but both on the commercial side and on the military side, China is definitely pressing pressing ahead full steam. Uh, and again, just going back to the you know the the different model that China has for uh, governance and for planning allows them to do these long term projects uh, under Xi Jinping, uh, whose you know presumably his priorities don't change that much day to day or year to year, uh, and so they get steady funding, steady uh, programmatic and policy support. Uh, and so we should take very seriously when they say. They have a plan to do something uh, and they announced kind of a timeline. They've put a lot of time and effort into, into how they plan to achieve all those goals scientifically, technologically uh, and financially. And so we should uh, we should pay a lot of attention. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just add one other thing that I found interesting is um, they've been um, advancing not only in, in the lunar sphere, but they've also been looking at reusable spacecraft by 2027 um, they're looking at, uh, well, they, they've already tested a couple times, a almost carbon copy, at least uh, aesthetically, of X-37B uh, over the last several months. So they're, they're doing everything they can to, to have options um, for various missions and reasons. And so 
as Brenda and you were saying, we, you know, they definitely uh, have have a schedule and a means to do that without all the different fun that we have to deal with here in a free society, which is, you know, to our benefit. But it does also kind of slow us down a little bit at times when when in competition with a a state that is controlled from the top like that and and micromanaged. But I do think they're they're definitely worth watching and definitely worth we're trying to keep ahead of. And they also recently launched the first methane-powered rocket. They did. Uh, I'm not a scientist, so I can't tell you how you know uh, hard or easy that is. But it, I think, for me, the importance of that is that it goes to show that uh, they're not tying themselves to just only what uh, you know the U.S. and the Russians have done previously. They're exploring all their options uh, for a variety of technologies, and that just happens to be one of them. But Maybe Chris has some more insight into the the technological either leap or gap that that shows. Well, I, I don't have any I don't have any any specifics, but I the the assumption that I have when I was reading those articles is the fact that we we as a country have already been testing methane engines for a while. It's just a matter of linking them up and putting them up on into space. And given the ba- I'm I'm curious if they copied anything. <laughs> of those designs and just we're kind of having, you know, some time savings on their side because of that. I'm not aware that that's been proven or anything, but because of, of just how they've advanced their rocket technology due to technology transfers and theft over the last 30 years, I would not be surprised if, if somebody, you know, if they found some way to get access to a design or a blueprint and then they were able to go from there. But yeah, I, I'm not aware of the exact technical difficulties with that. I just know that it's it burns cleaner, which is also interesting because of of how the Chinese typically haven't really shown a whole lot of high care factor for that kind of a thing with their, you know, dirty red colored plumes and dropping stages on villages with hydrazine and other other chemicals on board. So the fact that they're pushing a clean rocket engine, I find also interesting, and I'm curious what others around the world think about that and if they think that is meant to be a messaging or if they're actually serious. And what else caught my eye at least, and perhaps this is simply a psyops operation on the part of Indian intelligence, but according to two Indian newspapers of record, the Times of India and India Today, there's a possible purge of military officers connected with the People's Liberation Army's rocket forces. And the reports say there has been at least one death by suicide and a couple of disappearances. And all we know, you know, is that China's foreign minister, Qinggong, is also missing with his name and likeness scrubbed from every state-owned digital platform. Now, the PLA's rocket forces are responsible for land-based nuclear and conventional ballistic missiles. So why am I bringing this up? Well, the deputy commander of the Strategic Support Force and who's also the commander of the Space Force, Shang Hong, is also mentioned as being under the magnifying glass, as is Zhang Zhenzhong, who commanded two different launch facilities. And this report follows a reported purge that we spoke about in May. And that one was about three state-owned companies that are working on a SpaceX Starlink equivalent. What do you guys make of this? Yeah, so there's a lot going on to unpack there. So uh, the first part is uh, China tends to be very uh, circumspect. Uh, especially when investigations are ongoing. Once the investigation is uh, complete, uh, I suspect uh, if there are indeed investigations, 
Uh, we'll get much more information on, you know, who did what, what they were accused of, whether they got kicked out of the party and whether they're going to check them in jail or house arrest or whatever. So that's assuming that any of that is actually going on. Uh, you know, keep in mind that uh, India has a free and active press uh, and that uh, they could get some sensationalism in there as well. So, uh, you know, hard to hard to get any corroboration. However, uh, we do know from his own words that, you know, Xi Jinping is very concerned about the legitimacy of the party, very concerned about uh, how that influences uh, the role and the, the view of the Chinese population of the, the Communist Party's arm wing, the People's Liberation Army. Uh, and so, and we've seen him from the very beginning of his tenure go after, uh, you know, they call them tigers and flies, you know, senior generals and, and uh, lowly kind of bureaucrats. So uh, it is not beyond reason that uh, he's continuing this to make sure that in his, you know, in his view, the party gets shored up, uh, the people have faith in it, uh, and the party is going to maintain their leading role in society all the way up till 2049 and beyond. So uh, the fact that it happens to all be going through the, the plarf at the moment it is of interest, but then of course, it may simply be the fact that they uncovered one thing which led to another. And since you know the PLA tends to be fairly insular, everyone they knew about was all in their own kind of sphere, and that's why it's not spilling out into the you know, for example, the Navy, the Army. That's just speculation on my part, but seems plausible. Yeah, and I'll I'll add also that I think it's important to look at this in the context of the last several years. So. I don't remember what year it was, but it was a few years ago that there was reporting that several Chinese space leaders, some from uh, state-owned companies, um, others in the PLA, were moving into key political and political military positions. And when I talk political, I'm talking like provincial governor type positions um, and some in key areas where the party was having issues. So um like on the military side, they moved the author of the uh, the first science of strategy, who was also a rocket force officer, into a very influential position on the Chinese reorganization, modernization of space forces, was moved up to the Central Military Commission, which was directly reporting to Xi Jinping. Um, I think that was back around the time he was either on his second term or something around that time frame. So now that we've got some senior positions, not all held by space people, like the foreign minister who was also removed, disappeared. And as such, you know, as, as Brennan was mentioning, speculation about and some people because of the past of people being disappeared and not seen of again. Or even I think it was earlier this year when, when Xi Jinping had Hu Jintao. Was it Hu Jintao? I think that was moved out of the of the party congress yes, meeting. Yeah, the party congress. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I mean, this is not something that that is new. <laughs> it's definitely something that happens, and I would not be surprised if if she doesn't use the anti-corruption um, mantra as he typically does when trying to get people that either a are getting too influential for their own good or um, advancing concepts and ideas that may be contrary to the vision of of the party under Xi Jinping. But we'll definitely have to watch and see what happens. But this is definitely intriguing. And uh, as Brendan said, we'll probably hear more or uh, as time goes on. And just to bookend this, uh, while I was preparing for today's recording, I ran across a video from the China Government Television uh, Network, or CGTN, which is the English language propaganda channel. And it broadcast a story with Xi Jinping having him it rather it was showing him telling military leaders to get serious about military governance and monetary stewardship i don't know it just the, the timing just seems to be kind of interesting unless he just sort of does this all the time well 
Uh, both both of those tend to be true, as I a matter of fact. So he uh, <laughs> he he from the beginning has uh, really emphasized the the party's role, the party's leadership, uh, following party dictates uh, far more than Hu Jintao certainly ever did. Um, and so it's not something new that he's doing. Timing, of course, is interesting uh, when you get the you know the replacement of the foreign minister uh, who you know had uh, up until this point. Uh, people had thought that he was kind of the protege uh, and had been doing a good job and was on this uh, this rocket ride up the, the bureaucratic ladder within the party. And then all of a sudden, you know, drops drops from view. Um, so the timing is interesting, but I wouldn't read too much into it. Uh, but Xi Jinping absolutely continues to focus on uh, ensuring the party's leadership role and the command uh, of the, uh, you know, the command of the gun, as Mao put it, over the PLA. So that part is just part and parcel. And any given week, you can find Xi Jinping saying something about that. And our last subject, because this is the news, Space Force Lieutenant General Stephen Whiting had a Senate nomination hearing this week for his coming position as the commander of U.S. Space Command. Who is Whiting? Why him? And what challenges does he face? And I'm asking also for an explanation of Space Command for those who would appreciate just a little schooling on the difference between a service branch and a command. Chris, why don't you kick this one off? Sure. So uh, U.S. Space Command is the combatant command for space-related issues. So in the United States, the way we organize is we have services military services that are organized, train and equip the various forces for their respective domains, so land, sea, air, uh, and space. And we have combatant commands worldwide on Earth, um, geographic combatant commands that are responsible for different regions of the world that uh, are given forces in times of conflict to fight conflict, uh, deter conflict, things of that sort. And so with regard to Space Command, that was uh, reinstituted in a different form back in 2019 to be in charge of dealing with the area of responsibility of space, which, according to the Unified Command Plan, was about 100 kilometers and up. And uh, as a result of that, for the last few years, it's been an Army Space and Missile Defense Command general named uh, Dickinson, who was at the helm. Um, And now... Uh, we have a Space Force officer who's been nominated, um, and it's General Whiting. He is currently the commander of the Space Force's uh, Operational Field Command, which is called uh, Space Operations Command, based out of Colorado Springs. And he's had a lot of uh, interesting background in both joint commands uh, as well as service commands. And so he's he's the guy that, uh, that's been nominated. Now, I'll also mention one of the things that happens with uh, combatant commands is that usually the two biggest force providers provide the leadership in the deputy and the commander role. And they usually alternate those, as you see, like with the Joint Chiefs chairman, they usually rotate between the services. Um, In PACOM, you have a Navy guy and an Air Force guy. Typically, they rotate between. Same with Space Command. Uh, For a while, when Raymond was dual-hatted, uh, as the chief of space operations and U.S. Space Command commander, the Army commander or, or deputy was was Dickinson, and then he fleeted up. And then we had a Space Force deputy. And now we're looking at having a Space Force combatant commander with Spacecom, and probably an Army deputy. I'm guessing we'll see what happens with that. But uh, that's who that is. And what was your last question? <laughs> you know, what kind of challenges does he face? Yeah. So. Um, 
I think he faces uh, three big ones. One, he faces a China that is aggressively pursuing space dominance, in their own words, in orbit and out to cislunar space. And that includes both economic development and military power projection capabilities. So their Space Silk Road, part of Belt and Road Initiative, uh, space is a big deal. They're, they're pushed with the space station and the lunar research station, uh, trying to get people on that we were talking about earlier with Venezuela. Uh, he also has the challenge of, of a Congress that is asking for insight into what is needed to be effective for deterring and war fighting for the most part, uh, and an administration whose policy statements are confusing at best and limiting at worst with regard to the mission of Space Command and Space Force. And for example, just to, just to tell you what I mean by that, you've got the, the CSO, the Chief of Space Operations, says attacks on constellations are, and he's correct in this in this respect, are an act of war. And he and the Secretary of the Air Force are, are rightly uh, wanting to have the means to fight and win through what they call hard and soft kill capabilities. And then they come out afterwards, and the Space Command Commander, General Dickinson, said the same thing, that the primary mission of both Space Force and U.S. Space Command is not deterrence and warfighting against the space threat, but is terrestrial support and enabling the joint force, which is kind of inverted if, if you know if, because of what those those two institutions were created for was to quote get after the threat in space, and because of their AOR being 100 kilometers and up and not below, which is the purview of the terrestrial geographic combatant commands. So, um, but yeah, th- those are the biggest challenges that I think he faces. Brendan. <laughs> Yeah, Chris covered uh, quite the waterfront there. So uh, I I will say that you know he does he does face uh, challenges in this um, uh, in this current period uh, about how how much we can talk about offense, how much we can uh, be par- preparing for it. Uh, and Chris did a good job, right? So he is the warfighter. Um, you know, he may be a space force officer, but it doesn't matter because there's an army guy now. They are in charge of fighting the war, fighting the domain. Uh, and supporting all the other domains, and so that's that's his job. And if he gets hamstrung by uh, political decisions and policy uh, that limit our ability to talk about war, to talk about at least uh, you know talking about what our adversaries and, and challengers are going to do, uh, that really is going to uh, is going to be a hard hard thing for him to deal with um, while still doing his his job in preparing the the force uh, and the uh, the combatant command. And Chris. You recently wrote an op-ed piece in Defense News titled, Who Will Defend Critical Space Infrastructure If Not the Space Force? What is the premise of the piece, and how should this marry up with what Space Command does or should do? Yeah, so I, I wrote this as sort of a response to a statement that was reported in the news from General Dickinson, current U.S. Space Command commander, that stated essentially that there is no blanket protection offered by Space Command to commercial providers who operate in space. And my argument in there was essentially, you know, the Space Force is supposed to be the provider of forces similar to the way the Navy provides destroyers and other other systems and capabilities that are there to protect commercial shipping, merchant shipping as they traverse different areas of international waters. And I use an example of one that happened in the Gulf of Oman, where um, a couple of flagged vessels that were not U.S., but were friendly to the U.S., requested, um, you know, asked for assistance because they were being fired upon and attempted to be seized by uh, Iranian Navy vessels. And so as a result, we shipped in a, a destroyer and they backed off and things of that sort. 
And so I, I was asking the question, what if the commander of U.S. Central Command or U.S. Pacific Command said, sorry, ships traversing the region, um, you're on your own. You have to figure out how to defend yourself. We don't provide that. Well, that kind of defeats the purpose of having a Navy and an Air Force, um, which are supposed to be there to help protect, you know, as the leader of the U.S. international order and also U.S. interests and allies' interests you know, around the world, you know, it kind of defeats the purpose of having a military service if you're not going to defend them. Not only that, but you've had hearings over the last several years where members of the commercial space sector have said to Congress that they definitely want a space force and they want a U.S. space command that will help them protect. And the commercial sector has been very tied in tightly with space command and space force and exercises and everything else. So that comment just seemed a little odd to me. And I thought that we needed to argue the point that, you know, Space Force was created to deal with the space threat. And if the point of the Space Force and Space Command is to enable and support ground operations on Earth, you know, if you don't protect the space pieces, then you're not going to have them to provide support to the terrestrial. And as I mentioned earlier, the, the mission priority, the primary missions have shifted to terrestrial support from protect and defend and the secondary mission is now protect and defend instead of support, um, which everything is kind of inverted. And the CSO has even gave a speech recently where he's saying, hey, we need to redefine space superiority to be enabling and supporting. So that's why I was saying it was confusing. Out of one side, they're saying we need to have the ability for deterrence and war fighting because that's important. And then on the other side, they're saying, yeah, but it's not as important as this. So we need to rethink how we think it's kind of odd. So it depends on the day, but that's what I wrote about. Yeah, it is really odd. I also find it really odd that Dickinson, you know, said that um, about commercial space operators and commercial space assets, because doesn't the military use a lot of commercial space assets? And a lot of our allies use commercial space assets that are on orbit right now, as well as on the ground. Yeah, um, I, I think a few years ago, we were up to 80% of all satellite communications was provided by commercial providers. Um, I know they're looking at expanding that into weather and other missions. But, you know, and, and I know some people listening probably are saying, oh, well, that's a command authority thing. He's just talking about how his boss and his boss's boss has to give him the authority to do that. And I'm like, okay, well, there's a thing called the Unified Command Plan that gives him that. And within military planning and authority uh, and orders, you have things that are called specified tasks and you have things that are called implied tasks. And just because something is not in writing doesn't mean that that is not your, one of your responsibilities based on one of your specified tasks. So if protecting and defending is one of your areas, you know, the Navy's job is not just to protect and defend their own fleets just so they have the ability to float around the earth. They're there for a purpose, which is to keep the sea lines of communications open, to protect U.S. interests and friends and allies that need help. And they do that in a very large planet with very few assets. So I think there's there's an analogy to be said there about that and the Space Force as well. Yeah, let me jump in here real quick because I think it ties nicely to kind of where we started. Uh, and I'll take it in just a slightly different direction, uh, although I totally agree with what Chris was saying. Uh, is it something else we're also not thinking about or not thinking enough about? And this goes back to the, the Global Air and Space Chiefs Conference because I talked to several of them. Uh, and I said, hey, you know, navies around the world typically indemnify commercial shipping when they're in support of Navy missions. Are you Britain? Are you India? Are you country X, Y, and Z? you know, thinking about that and ready to make that commitment to commercial space providers, because 
you know, SpaceX is a perfect example. You know, what's going on in Ukraine? Uh, we are reliant on uh, a lot of these things. It's going to continue to be that way. And by the way, there are other countries, i.e. Russia and China specifically, who don't really see a, a line between a valid military target and a purely commercial one, especially when those commercial targets or commercial satellites uh, may or may not be supporting governments around the world. And so that's one of those things we really need to start thinking about. And I think Chris has hit it on the head because you got to think of the full suite of if the, if we created a Space Force for a specific mission, uh, we need to make sure we're thinking about all of those missions and we don't really have time uh, to do you know one thing by one thing. We need to be thinking about the full gamut and what's going to happen 10, 15 years in the future, uh, you know, if conflict ever does uh, erupt. Space will obviously play a part. Maybe it will be conflict in space. Maybe it will be war in space. Uh, but regardless, any kind of conflict, space is going to play a role. So we need to think about that now. Uh, and I've just, uh, there's certainly none of the, none of the military folks were, uh, were willing to take, uh, take a bite at that apple. Brendan, Chris, thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much. Appreciate you having me. Thanks. It's always great and uh, look forward to the next iteration. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.